Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day. We know, Lord, that every day is an opportunity to know you more deeply and more intimately, to learn from you, to worship you, Father, to obey you, to put you first in our heart. And so we thank you for this day, and we just pray, Father, that you would help us to use every moment of it wisely to your honor and to your glory. We pray for this hour that we have together. Pray that you would help us to be awake and alert after such a beautiful lunch. I pray that your spirit would guide and direct the thoughts of my mind, Father, the words of my mouth, the intentions of my heart, that they might be pleasing in your sight and that they might be according to your will. And I pray, Father, that as we open the word of God together, that you would also open our hearts. Give us understanding. Give us faith to believe. Give us wisdom and discernment as to how to apply these principles in our life. Because, Father, we do not want to waste this precious life that you have given to us, that your son died to purchase. So we commit this time into your hands with thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11, Boaz says to Ruth, For all the people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And many times in scripture we see a woman's life defined in just one simple sentence. And this is how the Spirit of God led Boaz to define it. All the people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And that, wo- uh, that word for excellence is also found in Proverbs 31.10. It's the Hebrew word kael, C-H-A-Y-E-L, kael. Only it's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. Only twice is it translated as excellence. Proverbs 31.10, a woman of excellence who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The other place that it's translated as excellence is in the words of Boaz. All the people in this city know that you are a woman of excellence. So over 200 times the word is used. How else is it translated? It's translated as strong, as valiant, as victorious. It's translated as an army. And it's most often used for David's mighty men. And I find that very interesting that God would use the same word to describe an excellent woman as he would the mighty men of David. Because we're quite different, aren't we? I don't feel like a mighty man. I don't feel like I would be ready to fight in David's army. But I am ready by the word of God and by the the, uh, sword of God's spirit to fight the spiritual battles that God has put before me. So ladies, to be an excellent woman is much more than just brewing a good cup of coffee and keeping the house clean. It's being prepared to fight the battles that God has put before us with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God, our spiritual battles. So what did Boaz see in Ruth's life that made him call her an excellent woman? We're going to look at some of those qualities, some of the decisions that he made. And you might think this is a little bit funny, but we are going to find Ruth in the pages of the book of Philippians. The pages of the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles open to that book, the book of Philippians, her life is written all over these pages. And I find it very fascinating that a young Moabite woman would have similar qualities to the great Apostle Paul. Doesn't that just strike you as as fascinating, as challenging, really? But she does. And we will see her life in the pages of the book of Philippians. So what did Boaz see in Ruth's life? What did the city see in Ruth's life that gave her this reputation of being an excellent woman? 
four decisions that Ruth made, actually five decisions that Ruth made that gave her this reputation. The first one is that she chose to be single-minded. She chose single-minded devotion to God. And we see this in chapter 1 when she was willing to leave her home, her family, her birth family, her country, and she was willing to follow Naomi to a land and a country and a people that she did not know. Why did she have that single-minded devotion to God? Well, if you think of it, if she had chosen to hold on to those things in her country, her birth people, her birth land, her birth country, if she had told to, chose to hold on to those things, she would have had to let go of her relationship to God. But she chose instead to let go of all those things in order to hold on, in order to grasp tightly to her relationship with God. She had been introduced to the God of Israel, and she would not let him go. She showed single-minded devotion to him. Philippians chapter 3, we see this same quality, these same decisions in the life of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 3, let's read verse 7 through 10. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. You see here that he also, the Apostle Paul, had willingly lost many things. He had a reputation amongst the Pharisees. He had an upbringing. He had a status. He had a high standing among the Jewish religious people. And he said all of that is loss. The Greek word is a word for dung, or we could say it in a, in a more blatant uh, way. But he counted all of that as nothing, as trash, as rubbish, as dung, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And God works in our life to remove things from us. He works in our lives to test us, to try us, so that we look around us and we say, these things out here are not valuable. Things that I had in my past, whether victories or whether failures, I can let go of those things because I have one thing in front of me, and that is the single-minded goal of knowing Jesus Christ. How do we know him? We know him in his word. We know him through prayer. We know him when we obey and he teaches us things about him. We know him in our trials and our sufferings, don't we? As his presence is, is felt in a much closer way. So that one goal, we leave everything else behind, the noise and the chaos of the world that is around us. We don't turn to the left or to the right to be in the middle of that. We press on towards that one goal, just as Ruth did. And then in verse 13, verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. And this is a, this is a very intense word to pursue, to run after something. I press on. I pursue this in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. However many years you have, 
in study of the Word of God, you have not completely laid hold of it yet. If you have one more breath to take, that one more breath should be devoted to single-minded um, uh, attention to God. So he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This one thing I do. I have before me sitting many ladies, many beautiful ladies. Have you ever done just one thing? <laughs> no. If you're mothers, if you're wives, if you're a career woman, you multitask, don't you? I think we multitask way far better than the men do. But we still need to have this attitude, this single-minded devotion, this one thing I do. How do we do just one thing? First of all, we start our day with that attention towards God through prayer, through surrendering your day to Him, through getting into the Word so that you have something to meditate on during that day. We start out with a single-minded devotion to God. I find the best way to make my day be of eternal value, to make my day be worthy of walking with the Lord, is to just climb out of bed and fall on my knees and surrender myself that day, surrender that day myself to His will and to His purpose. But also, then as we go about our activities, we do laundry with Jesus. We wash dishes with Jesus. We drive a school bus with Jesus. We don't forget him in the many activities of our day. We keep that single-minded focus on him. And then we can multitask in the world, and we can still have that spiritual focus, single-minded devotion to God. Turn back over to Philippians chapter 1. I love this passage. Again, on the single-minded focus, single-minded devotion to God. The Apostle Paul was in prison, and he thought in chapter 1, he told the Philippian believers, he wrote to them, he said, I feel like my imprisonment is, is um, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that the Philippian believers and others were becoming more brave, more courageous in their witness because of seeing Paul's willingness to be arrested for the gospel. It gave them courage. It gave them boldness. You know, persecution in any country is the best way to advance the gospel. And so as he writes to them, he asks them for prayer. Verses eight, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he is, he is imploring the Philippian believers to pray for him. And he's saying, pray for me that I get out of prison quick. Is that what he's saying? No, he has no focus on the spiritual. He's not asking them at all to be delivered from prison. His focus is on the spiritual, that while he is in prison, he would not shame the name of Jesus Christ. While he is in prison, he would suffer well. While he is in prison, he would not forget the goal of the advancement of the gospel. Such a single-minded focus. He didn't pray at all for the physical aspects, the suffering that he was going through, only the spiritual deliverance that he would be delivered from wasting this suffering and this time that God had put into his life. And then he makes an amazing statement. 
For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We see it on t-shirts all the time. What does it mean? We see it on coffee cups. What does it mean? For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We see it in the life of Ruth, to have a single-minded focus on God, on Christ. And I want you to think about something. Can you fill anything into that sentence and still have it be true? For to me, to live is riches and to die is gain. Is that true? No. Because if you live for riches, do those riches go with you? No. For me, to live is a bigger house and to die is gain. Is that true? No, because when you die, that bigger house stays behind. For me, to live is beauty and to die is gain. We don't take our physical beauty to eternity with, do we? For me to live is a better career. For me to live is fame. For me to live is popularity. None of those things are true. But for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the only true statement. Because when we live for Christ, the blessings in time, the opportunities that we have to serve and to live with him and to share the gospel Those things are laid up for us as treasures in heaven, and we take that reward with us. It just makes you wonder, why do we ever live for anything besides him? Why do we sometimes so easily live for ourselves? For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Isabel Kuhn, who is one of my favorite missionary authors, she said, I hold my treasures on the open palm of my hand, because if I cling to my treasures, God might have to pry my fingers open to take them away when he chooses. If we hold our treasures on the open palm of our hand, then we are able to hold on tightly, grip tightly, cling tightly to Jesus Christ and to his word. So Ruth was an excellent woman. Why? Because she was a woman with single-minded focus on God. Ruth was also an excellent woman, a Kael woman, because she chose not only single-mindedness, she chose service. And we see this throughout the book of Ruth, don't we? You were listening to the classes this morning, especially in Ruth chapter 2. She pleads with Naomi, please may I go to the field and glean among the workers so that she would have something to live on, but also so that she would have something to share with Naomi. Was this easy? No, this would not have been an easy job working in the fields. Your hands get raw, you get sunburnt, you get hot, you get sweaty, you get tired, stooping over. Field workers, it's not an easy job. And yet she was willing to do this. And probably they lived a very simple, humble life at this point as poor widowed women returning to Bethlehem. It was hard work. Paul also had a passion to serve the people that were under his ministry. Look at Philippians chapter 2. He gives us some very good advice in this chapter. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He, we look at Jesus Christ and we know that he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the creator of the universe. And yet he came to serve the very creation that he created. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. Matthew 20 and verse 28. The King, the Creator, was the greatest servant, the most humble servant that ever lived. This is very, um, very humbling to us, isn't it? That he served the people like he did. He welcomed the little children. He washed the feet of the disciples. He fed the hungry. He healed the blind. And that too would have been hard work. He was constantly sought after until he made the issue in people's lives not physical blessing, but spiritual focus. And then they began to depart from him when he didn't give them the physical blessings and the things that they desired. What a tough life he walked. What a tough road he walked. What a sacrificial life he lived. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul, too, was a servant. So then, my beloved, my husband was talking about not just knowing the what, but knowing the how. So then, my beloved, just as you, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Does anybody have a black marker? Because I'd like to scratch that one out. <laughs> Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, USA Today, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So this is Paul's attitude towards service. Let's look at a couple things here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that we have to work for our salvation, but it means that we demonstrate our salvation through service. What is the motive behind serving God? Well, it's thankfulness. It's gratefulness for what Jesus Christ did for us. If we are truly thankful for the way he served us by dying on the cross for our sins, by being resurrected, by being exalted to that high place in the heavenlies, if we truly embrace the beauty and the value of our salvation, we will be willing to serve him with joy in our heart. That's how we demonstrate our salvation. We demonstrate the love that we have for Christ by serving his body. This is what the working out your salvation means. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Could I just say that maybe in your house this is a good place to start without grumbling and disputing? Because oftentimes we can serve in the church with a big smile on our face and all the glory goes to God and what else would you like me to do? And we can jump right in. But at home it's like, 
And that word grumbling means basically just to roll your eyes. You ever do that? Mm -hmm. Like your husband says, could you get me a cup of coffee? You're right there. Can't you do it yourself? (laughs) Grumbling and disputing. It should start at home, being willing to serve. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless, blameless and innocent children of God. In verse 17, he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, do you ever feel like you've just poured yourself out? Like there's nothing left? Like if I have to pick up one more dirty sock, I'm just going to die? If I have to like cook one more pound of hamburger, it's just going to kill me? Sometimes as women, we have so much to do that we just feel like we're poured out. And yet he says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, there's some historical meaning to that that I won't go in right now. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What a different perspective of serving. And I think that this is the joy that Ruth probably had. <laughs> I think she probably came home at the end of the day carrying this these grain offering to, to, uh, to Naomi, and she was probably exhausted. Her feet probably hurt. Her back probably hurt. And yet I think she probably found great joy in serving in this way, especially as she saw that The Lord was taking notice of what she did, and the Lord was providing in really miraculous ways for her and for Naomi without grumbling and disputing. When Christ walked here, here on this earth, he served many people, but many people served him as well. And I always think of the little band of women. I think it's in Luke chapter 8. They, they followed Jesus and the disciples around, and they ministered to them. They gave out of money out of their pockets to supply food and the needs of the, the apostles and Jesus as they went from place to place and ministered. And so that they could concentrate on the ministry, they probably started the fires, gathered the firewood, cooked the rice, cooked the bread, washed the robes, fixed the sandals, all of those things that sometimes women do that seem so trivial, don't they? They seem sometimes so trivial. And yet they were ministering to the Lord. They were ministering to his physical needs. And some of those same women were at the tomb when Jesus had been buried When Jesus had been put to the tomb, some of those same women came to that tomb on Sunday morning and they found the stone rolled away. And some of those same women are the ones that Jesus said, go and tell my disciples. Those women that served the physical needs of Jesus Christ as he ministered among the people, they were the first to know, the first to know that he was raised from the dead. What a glorious thing that was. What a glorious honor he gave to those women. And I think every one of us here would have been willing to be in that little band of women. If Jesus walked into this church right now, any one of us would, there's meat left, there's apple pie, ice cream, Lord. Would you like, do do your clothes need washed? What, What can I do to serve you? We would be so eager. We would be so ready. But the body of Jesus Christ is not going to walk down those stairs, but here it is. You are the body of Christ. And so if we want to serve him out of gratitude for what he has done for us, we serve one another without grumbling and without disputing. And my husband is a one another. My children are one another's. My grandchildren, when they come over and play, they can walk in the house and it's perfectly clean. They leave 20 minutes later and it's a wreck. (laughs) What do you do? (laughs) You try to teach them not to wreck the house. (laughs) But you also just clean up after them out of gratitude for their little lives, without grumbling and disputing. So Ruth was an excellent woman, a Kaya woman, 
because she served with the love of Christ. The third thing that we're going to see about Ruth is that she was surrendered. And we're going to see this in... um, Well, let me just turn back to the book of Ruth real quickly. You don't have to. But in Ruth, well, in Ruth chapter 3, she surrendered herself to Naomi's instructions, didn't she? When she came back and Naomi said, we have a kinsman redeemer, put your best clothes on, take a bath, get yourself ready, go to the the, um, harvesting field. She surrendered to Naomi's instruction, to Naomi's leadership. When she went to Boaz there at the, the threshing floor, she surrendered to Boaz's instruction. She surrendered to Boaz's leadership. She surrendered her will to those who were in authority or leadership under over her. And that's a very important principle. Sometimes as women, we don't like that, wo- that word submission. Sometimes as women, we balk at that word submission. And yet it's such a beautiful word when we truly understand it because it protects us. It shows our willingness to surrender first to Jesus Christ. And it is a source of inner beauty for us. First Peter 3 says that our inner beauty comes through submission and through surrender and that our inner beauty is not only eternal, a beauty that we can take to heaven with us, but it's precious in the sight of God. We all want to be precious to God, don't we? Like we as women love that word precious, precious jewels, precious whatever. We can be precious to our Heavenly Father with that attitude of surrender and submission. And she had this. Christ is also our example of surrender. Again in uh, Philippians chapter 2, we read the passage about service, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But Paul goes on in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I know I'm repeating the verses, but it's because of context who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember that phrase, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I ask you a question? Where would you and I be if Jesus had not been willing to surrender his will to the Father? Where would you and I be if he had not been willing to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? It's an easy answer. We would be lost. We would be eternally separated from God and eternally lost. This is the value of surrendering your will. And I just want want you to see this in Jesus' life. So turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is in the garden. It's before he's been arrested. It's after he's gone apart to pray. In verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. 
And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it. Ugh, sorry, I messed it up. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. This is the second time that he has said, Not as I will, but as you will, thy will be done. Verse 43, Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. What is the same thing he said once more? Not my will, but thy will be done. And it was the will of the Father that led him to the cross, and it was the will of the Father that he was willing to obey. Who do you have in your life that you need to surrender to? Who do you have in your life that you need to respect their authority, their leadership, their discernment, their advice, their instruction? Ruth was willing to surrender to those things, and it ended up being a great blessing to her. There's a story about a theologian years ago named Tower. He was studying the Word of God and was kind of at that place where you sometimes feel like you're at a roadblock, and he thought, I'm just going to go out and go for a walk. So as he was sauntering down a country road, he met a beggar. He said to the beggar, have a good day. The beggar said, thank you, sir. I have never had a bad day. So Tower said to him, well, I hope you have a happy life. Thank you, sir. My life has never been unhappy. Tower said, how, how can you say these things? He said, it's easy. When it rains, I thank God. When it's not raining, I thank God. When I'm full, I thank God. When I'm empty, I thank God. Ever since I surrendered my will to God's will, I have never been unhappy. And Tower just shook his head, perplexed. He said to the man, who are you? The man said, I am a king. And Tower said, a king, where is your kingdom? And the beggar said, my kingdom is in my heart. That's a surrendered will. Surrendered will to God. So Ruth was an excellent woman, a Kyle woman, because she was willing to surrender her will to those who would lead her and instruct her. The next thing that we're going to see is that Ruth was an excellent woman because she had a serene soul. We don't use that word serene very often, do we? Quiet, restful, waiting. And this is the verse I wanted to show you because we haven't gotten to it yet in the story that Jean's teaching from the book of Ruth. But in the end of chapter 3, after the arrangements have been made, Boaz says, go back to your mother-in-law. I will take care of the matter. And Naomi said to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Wait, my daughter. In other words, be quiet, be still, don't worry about it, just rest and wait on the Lord. Isn't waiting so hard? <laughs> Do you remember like waiting for the day of your wedding? Oh my gosh. Do you remember being like four or five months pregnant and having to wait another four or five or six months to have a baby? And that waiting was so hard. But if we are willing to wait on the Lord, it gives to our heart, to our soul, a serenity that the world cannot offer to us. 
And, you know, an anxious woman, a woman that's like honking the horn, puffing the cigarette, you know, tapping the like this. She's so beautiful, isn't she? No, you're just like, get with it, lady. What is the matter with you? Take a deep breath and wait. (laughs) But if we have that um, patience of soul and that freedom from anxiety, it really is. a. a, You you see it on people's faces, like sometimes... um, I see this on stewardesses because we're on a plane a lot and sometimes they're like stomping up and down the aisles and they're pushing the cart and they're they're throwing drinks here and there and you catch the peanuts and that kind of thing. And then there's others just come along and they have such a grace and a serenity to their face and to their their actions, the way that they're interacting with people. And I often think, I think that lady is probably a believer because the world offers us no serenity. We see this in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Prayer is our key to serenity of soul. Whatever issues you have in your life now, and if you're married, you have issues. If you have children or grandchildren, you have issues. If you have any people that you care about, you have issues. You have a cause to be anxious or a cause to worry. And yet you also have prayer. And prayer is the escape from that anxiety. Because in praying, we take all of those issues of our life, whatever we're dealing with, whatever the people that we love are dealing with, and we cast them on to a God who cares. We cast them onto a God who is strong and is able to bear all of those burdens. And believe it or not, ladies, he's able to sort it out. He's able to sort it out as long as we're willing to wait on him. It takes time. He doesn't always hurry, does he? But we don't need to puff the cigarette and tap on the door and honk the horn. God, I'm honking the horn. Hurry up. No, we can wait. We can wait in prayer. And he gives us that serenity and that peace that the world cannot give. Have you heard of the great missionary George Mueller? He took in and cared for 10,024 orphans over the span of his life. He said, anxiety is the end of faith, but faith ends anxiety. It's a great statement, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Something to remember. Anxiety is the end of faith. If you're anxious about something, worrying about something, it's because you're not trusting a trustworthy God. You're not trusting a faithful God. But faith ends anxiety. Because when you face that anxiety in faith, you realize that you can trust the faithfulness of God. And he said this because he had learned it over his lifetime. He cared for those 10,024 orphans, he and his wife, and he never asked anyone but the Lord for anything. 
And maybe you know the story of when he had, I think, a hundred children sitting at the breakfast table and the cook and the, the ones, the ladies that helped him in the kitchen and were there to serve the children. They came to him just as he was sitting down at the table with these hundred children and they said, there's no food, no food to feed these children. Children get hangry when they don't have breakfast, don't they? So he said, children, we're going to pray for our food this morning. And he had those children bow their head, and he thanked God for the food that God would provide. And just as he was closing his prayer with an amen, there was a knock on the door. It was the baker from down the road. He said, the Lord woke me up at 2 o'clock this morning and told me to bake bread for the children. Here's your bread. They were passing out the bread, and there was another knock on the door. It was the milkman from down the road. He said, I'm doing my morning milk runs. I've got barrels and barrels of milk on the cart, and my cart broke down. I can't fix my cart until somebody takes the milk. Will you take my milk? So the children ate the breakfast that John Mueller had prayed and thanked God for by faith. He was a man with a serene soul, and so was Ruth. Look farther down in chapter 4 to verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this speaks of the contentment that the Apostle Paul had. And I I might be doing a bit of projection here, but if I think of Ruth in the days of Ruth, back in the days of Judges, having lost her husband, having moved to a strange country, and yet gleaning in the fields, I think that she must have had a very content soul, that that serenity, that peace that she had with God was was one of contentment. Was her life perfect? No, it was far from perfect at this point. And yet she was content to live the life that God had put in front of her. I see contentment written all over her. And that's a big one, isn't it? Because we live in a world that says, you deserve a break today, go to McDonald's. Like, that's the answer? Seriously? (laughs) But it's always telling us we need more and better. And there's always more and better coming out, isn't there? New iPhone released every year. New Samsung released every year. I love photography, and I was with somebody this week that had a better camera than me. Contentment. I had to learn contentment. Okay, you go, yep, your picture's better. I get second place. (laughs) Had to be content with it. Whatever your area is, some people it's their house, some people it's their looks, some people it's their wardrobe, some people it's their bank account. Whatever you feel might be in danger of becoming the first goal of your life, put it aside. Put God there first because contentment is a treasure. It's a treasure to have that contentment in your soul. And I'll just point out in these verses that this is something that Paul learned. How do you learn something? You first have to be tested in it, don't you? And I just look back. I I am in the process. I can say I'm in the process of learning contentment. 
I haven't totally arrived. I don't know if I will totally arrive until I go to see my Savior face to face. But I can look back over the years of my life and I can see that I am more content now than I used to be. Used to be I'd check into a hotel and the ocean's on one side and my room's on this side. Why couldn't I have the ocean view? All those people have the ocean view. Why couldn't I have the ocean view? Or you go to a meal and you think you've chosen the best thing off the menu and somebody else has something that's like cheesier and creamier and tastier and spicier than you. Like, I did the wrong thing. I should have chosen that. I'm not content now with my $20 meal. I want somebody else's. It's so easy to be discontent with just the little things in our life. But what about the big things? What about where God has put us? Who God has put us with? What he is having us to do? We just visited on our way to the airport one of the most content and serene souls that I have ever met in my life. She is a quadriplegic. She is riddled with cancer that has now gone into her bones to where her bones are basically just dissolving in her body. She has bed sores, so she has to be turned over and over and over through the night and through the day. And she lays in that bed with a smile and a glow that can only come that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ. I have never heard her utter one word of complaint. Can you be content in that situation? Can you be content in your situation? Ruth had a serene soul, and that is one of the things that made her an excellent woman. And she was blessed, wasn't she? We haven't gotten to that part yet. But tomorrow morning, we're going to find the blessing, the reward of Ruth's life. As she does have the opportunity to marry Boaz, and as she gives birth to a tiny little boy that they name Obed. Obed's name means servant. And I love that because, you know, it's Jewish tradition to name a child after the father, isn't it? But I wonder if the women of the village looked at the service of Ruth and thought, Let's name him a masculine man's name that represents the life of Ruth. Let's name him Obed, servant, little Obed. She was blessed. I'm going to read you the closing words of Proverbs 31. We opened with Proverbs 31.10, an excellent Kyle wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. This proverb ends, this chapter ends with these words in verse 28. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the blessing and the reward that comes to a woman of honor. I want to close with another question. Has anyone ever said to you, God has a wonderful plan for your life? Anybody ever said that to you? Is it true? Mm -hmm. It is true. But I recently read a book called Reality by Greg Kukul, and he said, I think we need to rethink that statement. It's not so much about God has a wonderful plan for my life, but my life for God's wonderful plan. And I think Ruth understood this. She gave her life for God's wonderful plan, and so should we. Mm -hmm. Anne, would you close in prayer? Um, 
gracious Father, we're so thankful for your word, for these beautiful pictures that show us who you would like us to become. And Father, may we have a single-mindedness to seek you out and bring about circumstances that would cause us to see that you are the person we should focus on. You are the one that we should rise up each morning to serve. Give us a heart that would desire to do that. And uh, guide us, uh, test us, as much as we hate to say those things, <laughs> however you see fit to bring us to your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, ladies.